Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today my guest is Daniel H. Weiss, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Dan Weiss is also the author of half dozen books. He is a past president of Haverford College and Lafayette College. He's taught art history at Johns Hopkins University and also served as dean of Johns Hopkins University's Krieger School of Arts and Sciences. He's a scholar of art, a tireless champion of art museums, and a careful and astute thinker. Taking all of this into consideration, it is from his unique vantage point that he wrote the new book, Why the Museum Matters, and it's this book that we're here to talk about. I will hazard a guess that many of our listeners think the importance of the museum is a foregone conclusion. Why does the museum matter? It just does. But as the saying goes, we live in interesting times, and what Dan has done in this book is offer a perspective on the evolving idea of the museum, explore some of the pressing issues confronting museums today, and propose some possible paths forward with the goal of keeping museums vital. Dan, welcome and thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. I look forward to our discussion. We will, of course, talk about it all at greater length and with much more nuance, but if you had just one or two sentences to convey the essence of why you think museums matter, what would you say? They are a vibrant part of, of almost every community of any size throughout the United States and throughout the world, socially, economically, intellectually, and culturally. Your professional experience in the museum world is at the Met, and your book focuses primarily on the large American art museum as a species, but it seems to me that some of your insights have broader applicability to other kinds of cultural institutions, other nonprofit organizations. Would you talk a bit about some of the ways that the American art museums that you write about are entirely their own breed of institution with unique considerations and also about some of the ways that they play similar roles to other kinds of institutions in the larger ecosystem of arts, culture, and education. Yes, I'd be happy to. So I, I think, first of all, one of the things I wanted to make clear in the book is that organizations, institutions like art museums, uh, large encyclopedic art museums, but all kinds, play a vital role in society in the ways that other kinds of organizations can and do as well. So as you say, the book does both point out the singularity and distinctiveness of art museums, and at the same time, uh, it also shows the ways in which we're connected. Art museums, I'll start with the ways they're distinctive. Art museums have objects of art that are in their care, and the first and most important thing they do is preserve the cultural heritage of the societies that they study. And that means that there are technical and scientific aspects to our work to make sure that these objects are held and protected in perpetuity. Our job actually is to make sure that they are cared for forever. So there's a great deal of very specific attention given to works of art, how they must be treated, how they must be stored and moved and exhibited and so forth. But the other part of the book really deals with what cultural institutions can do or must do in a society that is uh, celebrates freedom of expression, democratic values, universal engagement. And we are in that sense not very different from Yale University or the American Museum of Natural History. And I wanted to point those out as well, the ways in which museums serve as a, as a venue or a forum for public discussion, the ways in which they are built and sustained by community and the ways they help both societies and individuals find their own identity through the experience of visiting them. 
So one of the themes in your book is the importance of shared govern governance of a museum, which makes sense in the context of the number of things that museums are charged with doing. But we talk about what that means. Who, who do you think should be involved in museum governance? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, that shared governance is an enduring principle that all mission-driven institutions operate within. That's universities and museums and many other kinds of organizations. And that has always been the case. What is distinctive about shared governance in this environment is that it is increasingly important as a way of engaging community and making sure there's both equity and engagement across all sectors of the community and shared governance can do that. So more specifically, in the first instance, shared governance is the relationship between the board of trustees and the leadership of the museum. And decisions are made in a thoughtful process where the board has certain responsibilities and the administration has a different responsibility, set of responsibilities, but both must cooperate in making important decisions. And so it's figuring out what is the best process for that to happen so that the right kind of discussions take place there. But I would say that it's a more expansive concept, shared governance, to include also other stakeholders. For sure, within a museum, it would be the curators and the conservators and other professional staff who have voices that are important to informing the strategy and the work. There is the, the city government. The metropolitan, as it happens, is owned, the building is owned by the city, but the contents and the operation of the museum are entirely independent. So we have a partnership where we need to engage the city in various kinds of discussions. And then there's the larger community. And again, this is true just as much for a university as it is for a museum, but it's thinking carefully about all of the constituencies that the institution serves, and then reflecting on how is, are their voices, should they be reflected, their ideas in decision-making and planning so that the museum is responsive to its mission. And that means practically figuring out how to harness all of that energy and all of those productive ideas in a meaningful way and remembering where accountability resides. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the community constituencies. What, what would you say the difference is between museums serving communities, which I think is something you would say museums need to be keenfully mindful of, and on the other hand, museums giving audiences what they want or what they think they want, what they say they want? Yeah, it's an interesting tension. We have in recent years, all museums have become increasingly alert to the need to expand services to wider ranges of audiences. There was a time, I'll stay with the Metropolitan for a moment, when the museum was founded just over 150 years ago. It was with a great democratic ideal that the leaders of the city of New York wanted to create a resource to advance the educational opportunities and intellectual engagement of everyone in the city. They had in mind people who work for a living every day, who are, who are uneducated, to, to make this place accessible to all. But then the institution that they built sure didn't look like that. There was, for example, no sign outside the museum for a long, long time as to what it was. And, and in some ways, the implicit message was, if you really don't know what this place is, maybe you shouldn't be here. So we sent these contradictory signals over the years about who we're serving. But in recent years, our mission has been to invite everyone who has any interest or inclination to come and have an experience here, learn about what the museum has to offer, and hopefully develop their own long-term relationship with us. Which brings me to the second half of, of your question about what we should be offering them and what's the difference between 
creating meaningful content and as it were pandering to the audience? How do you figure out what it is we should be communicating or, or programming in order to reach them? And that I think is, is the art of what good museums do well. We have to reach people where they are. We cannot put a sign outside that says we're having an esoteric exhibition on late Trecento painting in Northern Italy and expect people to say, oh, I wanna see that. I, that, I understand that. They may not understand anything about that. On the other hand, very specialized exhibitions of deep scholarly importance are part of what we do. So we have to reach people where they are by recognizing that we want them to have a meaningful experience. But I would distinguish also maybe controversially between entertainment and education. We want them to have an educational experience that is enjoyable, but we don't want to pander to them and just show them things that are going to that they think are uh, without knowing much more about what the museum does that they think would be fun. So we try to make the experience light enough to bring them in. We want them to have a learning experience. We want them to enjoy themselves, but we want them to come out somehow changed by that experience, somehow engaged. And that means for big museums, a wide range of programs from things that are suitable to young children to things that are suitable or, or uh, well designed for advanced scholars. So pivoting a little bit, I, I found your perspective as you expressed it in the book on protest in the context of museums interesting. You discuss a couple of protests that were centered on particular artworks. For example, a painting titled Open Casket by the artist Dana Schutz, which was included in the 2017 Whitney Biennial, and also a painting titled Therese Dreaming by the artist known as Baltus, which is in the permanent collection at the Met. What, what happened in each of those cases? Well, in many ways, those are both good case studies for how a museum should be thinking and navigating controversy. At the Whitney Biennial, the painting by Dana Schutz of, uh, of Emmett Till was very, right after the, the exhibition opened, it was seen as a very controversial image and a group of, of protesters, a group of artists were uh, offended by the idea that a white artist would create an image of such terrible suffering on the part of a black family. And the, their objection was that this is not something that should be the province of such an artist. And the controversy that ensued was really instructive. It, it was, uh, there were, there were um, demands made by these artists who had signed, I think 40 or 50 of them had signed uh, a proclamation that, that argued that the painting should be removed. Some of them said the painting should be destroyed. It didn't have any place and it shouldn't be anywhere in the artistic ecosystem. And my argument is, and I'm not the only one, many, many others made this argument that Museums should not be in the business of determining who gets to make these kinds of statements and who, who has a right to express their ideas. There's no question that Dana Schutz did this work respectfully and with a great feeling for the and compassion for Emmett Till's family. And she was, as she said herself, she was trying to explore what it means to, to uh, feel that kind of pain when your child is subject to such a grievous and terrible harm. And in the end, I think what I argued is that what museums should do is allow for thoughtful, respectful discussion and dialogue to take place very often across difference. Indeed, it is at the nexus of difference that most of the time, if we're paying attention, we learn the most. If we're, if we're talking about things we don't know about and we're learning, listening to others, we might learn something. If all we're doing is shouting at each other or ignoring each other, learning isn't all that easy. So museums need to provide a setting and a context for that work to happen. In this case, one of the protesters to the 
Dana Schutz painting, stood in front of the painting, prohibiting others from getting a chance to see it. And I said in the book, it is absolutely the right of anyone to protest in various ways, but they don't have the right to infringe on the experience of others. So standing in front of the painting, denying them access to seeing it in their own way is really insinuating yourself into the story. And it's a little bit, I think, about something else rather than just the issue at hand. So at the Metropolitan, when people have expressed a desire to protest, we always allow them to do it in ways that is not disruptive or violent, but also that doesn't interfere with the experience of others. So in the Dana Schutz case of uh, the Emmett Till painting, I, I argued that there ought to be a forum for these kinds of disagreements to take place, which indeed there, there was. It was a very lively discussion. I think actually in the end, it was a very productive process, except in the ways I described. The Therese Dreaming painting is a slightly different story. This is a painting by Balthus that the Metropolitan has had in its collection for many decades. And it's an image of an adolescent girl who is rather suggestively leaning back in a chair in a way that you can see under her skirt to her underwear. And it is, it is seen by many to be sexually suggestive. And two sisters who were visiting the museum, I think in 2017, saw the painting and were quite offended by its appearance on the wall of the Metropolitan. They did not understand why we would countenance, in their view, work that seemed vaguely pornographic and exploitative. And they, they too, put together a communication with us, and there was a petition eventually signed by 10,000 people that argued that we should remove the painting or, at a minimum, put up a trigger warning, telling people outside the gallery that there is inside a painting that might offend you because of its subject matter. And we concluded very thoughtfully that, that we will do neither of those things. There are other voices who would argue that this painting is not at all exploitative. And indeed, there, are, there were reviews of, of the exhibition that said that. Reasonable people can disagree. And of course, if you're offended by any subject matter, you are free at any point in time to turn away, to critique it, to write your own review, to do any number of things to express your disagreement with that image. But we did not want to in any way predetermine what your visitor's, viewer's experience should be of that painting, because there are wide ranges of ways in which one might experience that image. The curator's obligation is to put on the walls images that are of importance and visual interest, that have historical significance, maybe, but that in some way elevate our discussion and understanding of the visual arts. And in this case, this image is, is controversial and perhaps provocative, but we thought it stood that standard of being worthy of being on our walls and people can leave and they can do what, any number of things they wish to do to express disagreement. And toward the end of inspiring conversation, I mean, maybe it, it served a, an additional purpose in, in that experience. Yes, it very much did. I, I think in this case, there was a lot of discussion around this. It created its own swirl of activity. And, and that's one thing museums should be doing, not provoking controversy for the sake of controversy, but engaging in the serious work of presenting materials that help us to reflect on our own experiences and values and aesthetic um, priorities and discuss and debate them. And that's what happened here. So reasonable people can disagree about what we decided to do, but I think we all were, I learned from the, from the discussion. I was interested in the critique. I was interested in the discussion within the museum among the staff about how do we respond to this and what is the right answer. There are certain kinds of images we might very well have a have a trigger warning for if we thought that they needed to be exhibited, but they were they could be traumatic or very difficult to be seen. 
But I would say in very rare occasions, where we want to predetermine the viewer's experience. All of that came out of reflection because we were called upon to explain ourselves. And we should be called upon to explain ourselves whenever people feel inclined to do so. What about when you're called to explain yourselves as a museum community, uh, when the complaint doesn't have to do with the artwork that you're showing? Like, for example, there have been objections to some sources of funding that museums have found potentially objectionable. The Sackler family is one that has been in the news a lot over the past number of years. Does that change your feelings about protest? It, well, it absolutely is is an appropriate area and realm for discussion. And because museums are also community enterprises, I argue about this, in the, I talk about this in the book, that many museums in the United States are created by, led by, and sustained by financially and otherwise the local community. The Metropolitan is that. It was founded by the citizens of New York. And most museums are run in that way. We therefore have an obligation to the stakeholders in our well-being who use the museum, who support it, and so forth, to have answers to questions about issues such as these that make sense. We all know, for example, that there are certain donors most museums wouldn't take money from. If a neo-Nazi group wanted to have a named gallery inside the Metropolitan, we would not have a neo-Nazi gallery naming in our museum because we would don't believe a group like that represents the values of the institution. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't do anything to celebrate their identity or to advance that kind of point of view. On the other hand, there are many donors who might engage in behaviors that some of us find objectionable that we would put on the wall. So it's up to each museum through its shared governance process to discuss where does it draw the line? If most museums are comfortable drawing the line at the neo-Nazi contribution, it may be much harder to determine what to do about other kinds of donors who are in not quite so obviously doing things that are objectionable. And in that context, the Metropolitan has had many discussions around what our values and principles are with regard to donors who might be seen as objectionable. And my prevailing point of view is that we are primarily an art museum engaged in an educational mission, not a club to determine who's socially acceptable and who's not socially acceptable. So we at the Metropolitan would only draw that line in the most extreme cases because money given, let's say the money is legitimately earned, we're not gonna take dirty money under any circumstance, but let's say the money's legitimately earned by someone in a business that some of us find objectionable. And that money is being applied to advancing our mission and, and allowing people to have the learning experiences we seek, then that's more to the good. So we would do that unless those people or that money was crossed over that line that we would have to determine. So that's how we think about it. And of course, the Sacklers are an example where every museum has had discussions about what to do with regard to them. But there are other families and other individuals as well that have had those kinds of discussions. One last protest-related question. I I'm curious what you think uh, about the recent protests in Europe by climate activists doing things like throwing tomato soup on famous paintings. This is, you know, entirely separate from the art, entirely separate from the museum's governance and funding. And you know, but but the the activists have brought the protest to the museums. Do you do you feel that there's any role given that for the museums to, um, 
you know, organize a conversation about their climate concerns. Yeah, that's a really interesting case. I think on the one hand, what they were doing is egregious. On the other hand, it's really interesting. So let's talk about that for a moment. First of all, why are they doing that in an art museum? And the answer is because museums matter. That because people are paying attention to museums because they love these institutions. And so part of what they were trying to do, I think quite boldly, is jar people's attention to the issue they're concerned with by desecrating objects that most people value enormously. So they wanted to find a way to get, get our attention. And that in, that's obviously, it has nothing to do with being an art museum and it has nothing to do with Vincent van Gogh or whoever the artist is that they're desecrating. Um, so I think we recognize that museums are platforms for debate and discussion within society. And I'll go back to what I said earlier around protesting. There's nothing wrong with the museum being a venue for individuals or groups to express their concerns, so long as they aren't violent, they don't disrupt the experience of others, and, um, and they don't damage the art. That, that, that's not our business. We're not in a place where people can, can express their concerns by placing the well-being of others or works of art at risk. And these protesters, I think, foolishly and irresponsibly believe that throwing paint or soup or whatever it is at masterpieces under glass is no damage to the object. I can tell you that every single conservator alive will tell you, art conservator, that it does damage the object in one way or the other. And it certainly damages the frame. And many of those frames are original objects. So it's just an irresponsible, cavalier way of trying to generate attention for what is a very serious and important issue. I don't deny that. But I don't believe that art museums should be a venue for that kind of, of desecration of, of treasured objects that should be cared for and very fragile. I have one more question for you. Um, in in your book, you do discuss some of the, you know, the, the, the conversation these days around what museums are, what they could be, what they should be is uh, wide ranging and really exciting. Um, you talk about that quite a bit in the book. And I'm just curious what you think a couple of the most compelling arguments are for museums to make change in response to our evolving cultural societal moment. Well, it's a really interesting moment for museums. We have always recognized the, the museum movement dating back a, a century and a half in America. We have always recognized that our mission is to be of service to our community. And at the, on the one hand, to be places of vital interest to people who use these places for interest, for education and edification and, and, and all of that. And we are stewards of works of art that are intended to last forever. It's, it is absolutely part of our mission that we're supposed to make sure these things are well cared for till the end of time. Um, on the other hand, in recent years, because museums are seen as such an important part of our community, imagine for a moment a, a city with no museums. It's, it's inconceivable. We must, we are increasingly committed to being more relevant and more accessible. So that, that invites us to think in new and exciting ways about programming, new ways of presenting serious art historical content and interesting ideas in ways that generates new audiences. So not to debase the material or pander to the public, but to do things in new and interesting ways in order to, to interest people who might not otherwise be interested in museums. The Costume Institute at the Metropolitan is one example of that. It is our most successful programmatic area in large part because of the annual gala. But we present exhibitions around dress and fashion in American and global history 
that is intellectually very serious and that reflects on the human experience in ways that we think people, they want to see it, but they also, they can't help but come away having learned something very important. Another area that's really exciting is, is technology and virtual platforms that we all learned through the COVID years, that there are ways in which we can engage audiences who don't come into the building. And we now have at the Metropolitan and many museums, really high level, high quality programming that reaches people all around the world who will never come to the Met. When we do a virtual opening for an exhibition, normally we'll have 800 to 1,000 people come and walk through the show and then have a cocktail, sort of a traditional art museum opening. We do that still. But we also might have 50,000 people joining us virtually who get to see the opening and it's presented by a curator and it's a thoughtfully developed program. That's going to continue and that offers us ways to extend our mission using really highly developed technologies that we wouldn't have thought about 10 years ago. So there are all kinds of ways for us on the one hand to be extending our programmatic offerings in new and exciting ways and enlarging our audiences to receive those programs in new and exciting ways because we recognize from the outset that art museums, all kinds of museums are so fundamentally important to society that there's a great desire for people to participate and we want to increase the audience for that. Thank you, Dan, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for writing the book. Both reading it and talking to you have been interesting and enlightening. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. I encourage all of our listeners to check out the new book, Why the Museum Matters. I've been talking with Daniel H. Weiss, president and CEO of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The book, Why the Museum Matters, is available now wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.